Hi, everybody, and thank you for joining us today. I'm Lucy Derringer. I'm privileged to serve as the Chief Philanthropy Officer of Israel Policy Forum. I want to welcome those of you who are joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, and welcome back our returning viewers. Before we begin, I want to thank our supporters. Our work, including today's program, is made possible by you. We rely on donors like you to produce free expert analysis and informational content on the most pressing issues affecting the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, like today's incredibly timely briefing. If you don't yet support our work, please do so by visiting israelpolicyforum.org forward slash support. With that, I'm excited to introduce today's speakers, Amir Tibon of Haaretz and Israel Policy Forum's Chief Policy Officer, Michael Koppel. Thanks so much, Lucy. Um, uh, and hi, hi, Amir. Great to, great to see you as always. Um, hi, hi, Michael. I, I think it's a, we, we meet every, what is it, year and a half or so now for these election briefings. Uh, so it's, I won't say it's great to be uh, back, <laughs> but it is what it is. Exactly. And, and I always enjoy talking to you, you know, even, even if it's about, uh, even if it's about a topic like this. Um, so why don't we, uh, why don't we, why don't we jump right into it? Um, so let, let's, let's, let's start with kind of the, the broad, the broad question. Um, the Knesset today uh, passed in its first reading uh, a motion to, to dissolve, uh, which means that barring some sort of unforeseen circumstance, Israelis are going to go to a fifth election in about three and a half years. So um, tell us how how we got to how we got to where we are. Um, you know, particularly after uh, after the events of, of the last year, where we've had this broad government that now seems like it's going to be going away. So I think there are two ways to examine this, Michael. There is the issue of really the technical zigs and the zags of what happened in the last few months that led to the downfall of this specific government. And there is the broader view of the political reality that Israel has been stuck in for the last three years, uh, which is really the heart of the story. So with your permission, I'll start with the bigger picture and then move from it into the very little, you know, petty politics that brought down this specific government. Israel has been in the midst of a severe crisis, political and legal, um, and if we had a constitution in Israel, we would also call it constitutional. Um, ever since uh, late 2018, it's three and a half years now, uh, at the end of 2018, a government that was led at the time by Benjamin Netanyahu collapsed, um, even though it had more than a year left in office, and early elections were called in Israel. The background to that was some legal argument about a, a law related to the conscription in the Israeli military of ultra-Orthodox men. I won't go into the details, we'll run out of time, and we've only been four minutes into the, the webinar. Um, but that government fell apart. We went to an election that was held in April 2019. On the night of that election, every media outlet in Israel and the world had the same headline. Netanyahu wins another term in office, uh, wins the Israeli election. Uh, including Haaretz, my uh, own uh, uh, home and uh, a newspaper that I'm proud to work for. And everyone was wrong because it turned out Netanyahu didn't win that election. And this is an important lesson for the election that's about to come. Don't necessarily judge the results by the result of the election. I know this is a bit of a contradiction, but the results of the election don't always appear in Israel together with the result of the election. You need to wait and see who can form a government. And in that case, April 2019, while it appeared on election night that Netanyahu had secured victory, in reality, he did not. And he failed to form a government. And we went to an unprecedented, never before in Israeli history, second election, September 2019. And again, no decision, another election in March of 2020, more than uh, two years ago. That election led to a very short-lived experiment which was a unity government of Benjamin Netanyahu and Benny Gantz, the leader at the time of the Blue and White Party, a center-right um, national emergency government that was supposed to deal with COVID, and it collapsed after less than a year. I think it had only eight or nine months in office. Uh, the reason it collapsed was because Netanyahu did not respect the agreement that he had signed with Gantz that actually led to the formation of that government, 
Another round of election was held in March 2021. And after that one, the fourth election, we saw the creation of the Bennett-Lapid government, the change government that survived in office for a year. And it fell apart. I would say it's been dying for the last three months, um, actually. It's been dying since March of this year um, because that government from uh, the moment it was born had the smallest possible majority in the Israeli Knesset. It was a government of 61 members of Knesset. Uh, when, and those, of, those, of, of, um, you know, those in the audience who know a bit about Israeli politics know that the Knesset overall has 120 members. So 61 out of 120 is basically only a majority of one. And uh, even though that's really not a desired situation, most prime ministers in Israeli history have tried to assemble governing coalitions that have a larger majority um, and a little more space for uh, mistakes. Uh, still, the government managed with that bare bones majority to pass a state budget last year, uh, which was significant because we did not have a state budget for three years because of the political um, situation I just described. Um, and yet in March of this year, the government lost even that majority when a member of Naftali Bennett's ruling coalition party, um, Edith Silman, who funny enough was actually the coalition whip in the Knesset. She was the one who was supposed to make sure everyone in the coalition uh, votes according to the decisions. And she was the one who defected and joined the opposition and basically took away the majority. And ever since her defection, it's been a slow and gruesome death for this government until the very specific technical event of the last few weeks that convinced Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid um, that uh, it's better to burn out than fade away. Uh, and they basically said, if we're having all of these small petty politicians now using the situation where we don't have a majority to try to put pressure on us and to try to extract all kinds of humiliating concessions from us, and eventually it will fall apart either way, there was already one more member of Bennett's party who was making clear signs of defecting to Likud, member of Knesset Nir Orbach. This is the last time I, I'm going to mention his name in this webinar. He's not really worthy of it, and his political career just ended as well. Um, but basically, Bennett and Lapid said, instead of getting another hit and another blow, let's make a decision to take the initiative in our own hands, uh, put this uh, thing to an end, um, and go to an election and uh, see if the public will reward us for what the government has done in the past year. So that's the very short story of how we got to this moment. And the last thing I want to say about it, I, the important thing, in my opinion, is not the technical, tactical mistakes that Bennett and Lapid did along the way, and they certainly did. Perhaps the government could have survived a few more months if they had acted differently in this junction or in that event. I think the big story here is the democratic crisis that is leading us to a fifth election in two and a half years. We are taking this idea of the only democracy in the Middle East a step too far. I, I do want to ask um, one, one follow-up to that specifically about the Knesset's failure, or I should say the, the government's failure to pass the, um, the reauthorization of extending Israeli civil and criminal law to Israelis who are living in the West Bank. You know, a lot of the reporting around this suggested that that played some sort of role in the timing, because if the government did not dissolve before the end of this month, then that regulation, which has been renewed every five years since 1967, would expire, um, leading to all sorts of chaos. So I'm wondering if you think that that played an actual role or if that's kind of a red herring in all of this. This is a question, Michael, I think the historians will have to debate one day when they will have access to the WhatsApp and text messages of the members of Knesset and what exactly they said. Uh, I, I think it definitely contributed this uh, situation where the government, because it did not have a majority, and the opposition led by Netanyahu in a very, very cynical move, decided to vote against these regulations that have been almost automatically, in a sense, renewed by every Israeli Knesset and every Israeli government ever since 1967. Uh, because as long as there is no political solution that will put an end to the military control of the West Bank, these regulations are necessary to avoid complete chaos and illegality. Um, and it's not like today, 
Israel is uh, so uh, successful in controlling violence and uh, the building of uh, illegal settlement, you know, like outposts and things like that in the West Bank. Um, but this would have made everything 10 times worse. Basically, if these regulations fail to pass, a person can commit murder in Israel and then go and seek refuge in a West Bank settlement and the Israeli police would not have authority to arrest that person. This is what we're talking about. Um, and so once we had this 60-60 deadlock in the Knesset after Ibit Silman defected and joined the opposition, and following that, when the opposition said, we are going to vote in complete unison against these regulations, it definitely put the government in a difficult spot. Um, but I do think that if everyone in the governing coalition had voted in favor of the regulations and it would have fallen in a 60-60 draw, because of the opposition, perhaps politically, Bennett and Lapid could have actually used that to their advantage. They would have started a campaign attacking Netanyahu and some of his far-right allies for hurting the settlers, for hurting the settlement. Um, and they would have said, our government is taking the responsible action of trying to pass these regulations like every government before, even though there are left-wing parties in this government that want to end the Israeli military rule of the West Bank and want to reach a two-state solution, they realize that in the interim, endless interim period that we've been living through, the regulations have to stay. But when the vote actually happened, if you recall, Michael, two members of the ruling coalition, uh, one of them from Meretz and another from the United Arab List, voted against the regulation. This is Raida Rinawi Zoabi and Mazen Ranaim, again, Two names like the one I mentioned before that there is no reason to go into more details because they also their political career is, is over. Um, but when they voted against it, they deprived uh, Bennett and Lapid and basically the entire government of the option of blaming this on Netanyahu and turning this into a campaign against a disloyal and irresponsible opposition that is playing politics with people's lives. Because you cannot really attack the opposition for uh, killing these regulations when members of the own ruling coalition are also against it. So that definitely contributed and helped uh, to create more instability and suspicion. But my gut feeling is that if it was not for these regulations, maybe they would have survived a few more weeks. Maybe they would have made it to the end of the summer session in the Knesset, and then it would have blown up in the beginning of the fall uh, session around October. It would have given them a few more weeks or months, but I think that is tactical. The real issue here is that basically half of the political system in Israel is completely loyal to Netanyahu right now and serving his political and personal and legal interests. Um, and the other half is the anti-Netanyahu coalition, which is extremely uh, diverse and eclectic and includes everything from right-wingers to the far left. Um, and it's difficult to govern with that kind of coalition, as we just saw. And this tension between these two camps is what is driving the instability and causing the crisis. By the way, I should have noted uh, when we began, you're, you're, you're such, a, uh, you're such a, a longtime friend of Israel Policy Forum and, and frequent guest. Uh, both both in person and and virtually that I that I forgot to introduce you because I always assume everyone knows you. But uh, Amir Tibone is a, a long time a long time journalist from Haaretz, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, was recently appointed the uh, deputy editor of the English edition. Correct. Indeed. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Very recently. Okay. Um, so Mazal Tov on that. Um, so let's let's get let's get back to the the topic at hand. Um, so we're about to go to election number five. Um, what, if anything, is going to be different in the run-up to this election and, and the election itself? You know, let's leave aside the, the results for now. We can uh, do predictions at the end, but um, what's going to be different about, about this time than the previous four times? One big difference is that Benjamin Netanyahu is not going to be prime minister during the election. Maybe he will be prime minister after the election, but not during the election. The last uh, you know, the previous four rounds that we've went through since 2018, um, Netanyahu was the prime minister. At the, at the, in the beginning, he was the prime minister because he had won the 2015 election. And uh, while he did not complete his term, he was still enjoying the mandate he had received in the previous election. 
Then there were two rounds when he was really an interim prime minister. He had not won and failed to form a government, but because no one else had formed a government, he continued to rule over an interim government, which is much more limited in what it is allowed to do according to the laws of Israel. But he was the interim prime minister just because no one else had replaced him. Then there was the short-lived Netanyahu-Gantz government, which was actually a real government, and it uh, held for nine months. And so, again, we went to the fourth election with Netanyahu in office, and he was able throughout these election cycles to use the office of the prime minister for the benefits of his campaign, which every Israeli prime minister running for re-election since the dawn of this country has done. That's not uh, different. Some people will argue he has taken it to new heights. Some would say new heights of chutzpah, but... At the end of the day, this is what politicians do. Uh, so, for example, uh, if you recall, during these election rounds, all kinds of funny things happened. Donald Trump signed a document stating the Golan Heights is part of Israel. Um, Donald Trump and Benjamin Zanyao had a phone call three days before one of the election rounds when they discussed uh, an official defense treaty between Israel and the United States. After the election, suddenly we never heard about it again. The deal of the century, Jared Kushner's peace plan, um, was uh, revealed to the world a month before one of the election rounds. Coincidentally, on the same day that the indictment against Netanyahu on uh, bribery and the breach of trust and fraud was uh, uh, officially delivered to the Jerusalem court. So all of these weird things happened during the election rounds because Netanyahu was using the office of prime minister as an arm of the campaign. This time, he will be going into the election as the leader of the opposition, and Yair Lapid will be most likely the person who will actually be at the, in the prime minister's office. Um, and so that will be one big change. Netanyahu will have to campaign this time without the office and uh, as the leader of the opposition, whereas Lapid might be able to pull some of these Netanyahu tricks to, you know, suddenly, I don't know, go to Saudi Arabia. Um, announce some kind of a treaty with Biden and Arab states against Iran. Um, I don't know, Bennett tried to mediate between Ukraine and Russia. Maybe Lapid will inherit that file from him. All, all kinds of initiatives that will uh, show his uh, supposed success as a statesman and a diplomatic leader. So that's one big difference. The second big difference, I think the Israeli right wing is arriving to these elections in almost a perfect uh, political order. Uh, Michael, I think in one of the previous IPF webinars where we spoke together, or maybe it was with Susie Gelman, we talked about the importance of the threshold in Israel, the electoral threshold, uh, right? That basically in Israel, in order for a political party to win any seats in the Knesset, it has to receive at least 3.25% of the total vote. If you get 3.24% of the votes, you don't, win, you don't win any representation in the Knesset. Uh, and so as much as the polls usually highlight, first of all, which are the two largest parties, and in this election, it will probably be Likud and Yeshatid, the most important question is actually at the bottom, right? If you have this graph of the Israeli parties and their seats in the polls, and it starts here with Likud and goes down, the most important line is somewhere over here. Which parties pass the threshold and which parties fall beneath it? In this election, it's pretty clear that the pro-Netanyahu bloc, the religious and far-right bloc, has a much lower chance of losing parties beneath the threshold. It seems like the bloc is going to consist of Likud, the two ultra-Orthodox parties, Shas and the United Torah Judaism, and a far-right um, alignment of parties that includes the Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir, and they are running together. So it seems like there is a very low chance that the Netanyahu bloc will lose parties to the electoral threshold. On the other side, in the anti-Netanyahu bloc, right now it's a complete mess. Um, a lot of small parties hovering just above or just below the threshold. In the polls, the parties that seem most in danger of not passing are Meretz, uh, the United Arab List, and New Hope, the party of uh, Justice Minister Gidon Saar. But I think even Naftali Bennett, and uh, if he chooses to run in the election at all with his Yamina party, and even, even a Victor Lieberman's Israel Beitenu, 
uh, which has never fallen beneath the threshold because it used to have a very solid base of older Russian-speaking voters. Even those parties, I think, um, should not uh, feel completely confident um, about them passing the threshold. And so there is a real danger for the anti-Netanyahu bloc of losing parties to the electoral threshold. And they have to think very, very strategically about perhaps creating um, a, some kind of a, you know, a united a, a party list that consists of several parties inside them, like the far right list that includes both uh, Smotrich and uh, Ben Gvir and perhaps other players as well. So I think those are two big differences. The third one, of course, is actually in the United States. There is no more a, a Trump administration in America. In three of the four election rounds that Israel went to, Trump was in office and basically the White House was like the Likud headquarters in America. Uh, you had Trump and uh, uh, people working uh, for him, David Friedman, Jason Greenwald, basically completely in line with the Netanyahu campaign. They are angry when people say it. I had a lot of um, unpleasant conversations with people in the Trump administration when I used to write this when I was in Washington, D.C. Uh, as the correspondent for Art, and I, I wrote very clearly that they are working for Netanyahu in the election rounds, and they argued about it. They said it's unfair, uh, but I think history will show very clearly that they were working for one party in those elections, and again, they did not even invent it. If you go back in history, um, you will read about what Bill Clinton did in the 1996 and 1999 elections in Israel when he was working against Netanyahu at the time. Um, and, and there is more elections uh, that also had American involvement in history. But this time with the Biden administration, I think we will either see a gentle kind of like, you know, borderline attempt perhaps to bolster Lapid or a complete detachment and you know non-involvement biden is scheduled to visit israel in three weeks um and while officially that will already probably be within the range of the election it will be three months or more before election day which is really not a time when a visit can have that much of an impact uh if you want to impact an election you do it like trump did two weeks before the election or three days before the election Biden coming to Israel in July, when the election will probably be in late October, is not really going to make that much of an impact either way. If, uh, if you have any questions for Amir, you can put them in the Q&A box and, uh, and we will get to them uh, in the second part of the, of the webinar. So let's talk about Yair Lapid. As you noted, he is going to become interim prime minister once the Knesset dissolves and uh, he'll remain prime minister up until the election. And uh, if the election is inconclusive and a government cannot be formed, you know, he will continue uh, as prime minister until until there's an actual uh, a permanent government. So what can we expect to see from Prime Minister Yair Lapid? Do you expect him um, to craft his policies with an eye toward the election? Do you expect him to represent uh, a break from from the current government? What do you what do you foresee? First of all, it's important to note that Lapid entered politics a decade ago. Um, with the clear intention of becoming prime minister. Not everybody who goes into politics wants to be prime minister in Israel. There are people who go into politics because um, they want to be lawmakers, they want to be maybe ministers in a specific field or area. Um, Lapid very clearly stated from the beginning he wants to be prime minister, and it seems, unless there will be a very big surprise in the next few days, Basically, either the government somehow surviving this whole thing and remaining in power or an alternative government formed within this Knesset, led by someone else who is not Lapid, Netanyahu, Gantz, I don't know. I, I think the chances of either happening are very low, but if neither of them happen, in a few days he will succeed in the mission that he set for himself. And at least for the interim period of uh, four months until the election, he will be prime minister. And I think a decade after entering politics, um, that's actually a pretty nice achievement. Um, so that's, I think, for him, an important milestone. What will he do when he actually gets there? I think during the interim period, he will not try to do anything too dramatic uh, because he will be focused on, first of all, uh, stopping Netanyahu from getting a majority for the bloc of Likud and religious and far-right parties in the election. And in order for that to happen, Lapid needs a certain amount of right-wing Israelis who don't support Netanyahu to vote for the other right-wing parties that 
that are within the anti-Netanyahu bloc, whether it's Gidon Starr's New Hope, Bennett's party if he runs again, Lieberman, and anything that Lapid will do that will seem too leftist uh, to those voters could actually push them more toward the Netanyahu bloc. So I think he will take a very cautious approach in the next few months. I think he will focus on a, in the diplomatic and national security field on the Iran issue and on regional alliances, building on the Abraham Accords. We saw him actually already do that as foreign minister, right? If you recall, Michael, a few months ago, we had the Negev summit here in Israel, during which Lapid hosted Secretary of State Blinken and the foreign ministers of several important Arab countries. I think he will want to show more of that kind of regional approach, building an alliance against Iran, um, working with the United States and other allies. I think this will be one important focus. Uh, maybe on the economic front, he will actually try to do something a little more surprising and dramatic because Israelis, like Americans, are very concerned right now about inflation, about rising gas prices, about crazy housing and rent prices all over the country. If he has some uh, kind of a surprise a plan that he can put on the table on that front, I think it might help him in the election. There is the question of religion and state. Lapid entered politics being the son of uh, Tommy Lapid, the late Tommy Lapid, his father, who was a secular crusader. I know that's a bit of a, a weird term, but uh, in, in the Israeli political system where you don't have separation of religion and state and there is a lot of restrictive religious laws, it actually makes sense. So like his father, Lapid originally was this you know, secular fighter against the religious coercion and the, par and the power of the religious parties. I'm not sure if he will take that approach now as the interim prime minister during the election. I think perhaps he will actually try to show in a wink that he will be able to work with the ultra-Orthodox in the day after the election. During the election campaign, Netanyahu will have one clear message against Lapid. He will say, Lapid's only option of forming a government after the election will be a government with the joint list, with the most left-wing element in Israeli politics, the you know, communist, Arab nationalist conglomeration that we know as the joint list. And Lapid will have to reply to that. And I don't think Lapid will want to reply by saying, no, I will not work with the joint list, because Lapid has an interest that the Arab voting percentage in this election will be relatively high. We can talk about it later why. Um, but depressing Arab turnout will be a major mistake for Lapid. But I think what Lapid will want to say in reply is, actually, I have many options open to me. And he will want to convince voters that the ultra-Orthodox, or at least some of them, are not completely out of his reach. That in the day after the election, walls can be broken, um, suspicions can be overcome. And actually, the government that was formed with Bennett and that survived for only a year, but still managed to survive for that one year, might be a strong argument for him in that sense. He will say, just like I formed an impossible government with Bennett and Lieberman and Meretz and the Islamists, you know, the United Arab League, like who could imagine that? Just like I formed that government, I will also be able to form some kind of surprising arrangement after this election. And so I think that's why he will want to be cautious and moderate and not do anything that will convince Israelis that perhaps he will be limited in his political options in the day after the election. So before we get to audience questions, um, I do, I do want to ask you one, one last one. Um, which is, uh, you know, predictions. Obviously, uh, I guess you you actually already have made one prediction here. You uh, you have predicted that uh, Mazen Ghanayim is not going to become uh, mayor of Sakhnin. So um, you know that's a that's a that's a big one. But leaving that one leaving that one aside, um, obviously, you know, it, we're we're months out, and so any any real prediction uh, is not is not going to be all that valuable. But um, you know, give us a sense of what you think some of the what what you think the the likeliest scenario or scenarios might be when, when this is all done. And just to add to that, um, is there any chance that we actually don't have an election and uh, that Netanyahu is able to form a coalition from uh, the current Knesset? The it, it, mathematically, it's possible, right? The opposition led by Netanyahu right now, if you discount the joint list, which is six Knesset seats, 
the you know right-wing religious far-right opposition led by Netanyahu has 54 seats you need 61 for a majority let's give him already uh, you know one or two more defectors from Bennett's party that brings him to 56 let's give him I don't know two defectors from Gidon Saar's party not that I think there's going to be that gets him to 58 how do you get to 61 you need what two from the Benny Gantz's party I mean the the, the options be, begin to run out he it's only if an entire political party decides to go into a, a coalition with him I don't see Bennett and Matan Kahana uh, of the Amina party going with Netanyahu. Matan Kahana is the deputy re, re, um, minister for religious affairs, the most loyal, you know, sadly, the only loyal member of the Amina party to Naftali Bennett. Um, and they served together in the Israeli military in uh, Sayeret Matkal, Israel's top commando unit. They were together in the same small um, team within that unit, and they've been together since age 18. They are not going with Bibi right now. Um, I don't see Gidon Saar, who the whole idea of setting up his New Hope party was to fight Netanyahu, uh, now raising a, a white flag and surrendering and going into a Netanyahu government. I certainly don't see a Vigdor Lieberman going into a government with Netanyahu, although, Michael, you have to agree, it will be funny, right? It will be ironic because, remember, the reason this entire saga began in 2019, in, after the April 2019 election, was because of Vigdor Lieberman who was seen as a real, you know, kind of a, a stable member of the Netanyahu bloc, decided to end his political partnership with Netanyahu, a partnership of more than two decades, and uh, declare uh, that he is now committed to taking him down. So for him now to crawl back into the Netanyahu bloc, I don't see that happening either. Benny Gantz, Benny Gantz already went into a Netanyahu-led government once, was a completely... Uh, humiliated and um, just, you know, treated terribly by Netanyahu. Netanyahu lied to him and uh, mocked him. And Gantz uh, is not going to go into government with Netanyahu once again. So I think the, that's why it's going to be very difficult to set up an alternative government. It's not impossible, but very difficult. Prediction for the election itself. Here's what I will say. If all of the anti-Netanyahu parties past the electoral threshold, it will be very difficult for Netanyahu to reach the magic number, right? The magic number is 61. This is the number that has eluded Netanyahu in the four previous rounds of election. Um, this is the number he needs in order, first of all, to swear in a new government, but more important than that, in order to pass legislation that will cancel the ongoing trial against him in the Jerusalem District Court. This is what Netanyahu is laser focused on right now. This is his, it's not his top priority. It's his only priority. This is what he's fighting for right now. This is the fuel behind his political movement. His political movement believes that the criminal indictment against him is a conspiracy theory of the deep state and the left-wing media and judiciary. If it sounds familiar to you, um, perhaps there is a reason. Um, but he needs those 61 uh, fingers in order to pass a law in the Knesset that will cancel his uh, trial and then pass a subsequent law that will forbid the Israeli Supreme Court from intervening in the issue, right? Because if, he, if you just pass a law canceling one man's trial when the trial has been already ongoing for more than a year, Obviously, the Supreme Court will intervene and say this is illegal. So you, then you need a subsequent law that gives the Knesset the ability to override Supreme Court decisions. And if that law passes, Israel's entire balance of power changes overnight. Because then any government, any, any, any majority in the Knesset, even a majority of just one seat, can pass anti-democratic laws and there will not be any a, a, a judicial review that can protect the rights of the citizens from those laws. So this is what the election is about. This is, you know, there is a, a sense of fatigue, Michael, in the discussions in the Israel media about the election. Oh, another election, oh, fifth time. There will probably be a sixth time as well. But really, it's unjustified because this election is not boring. This election is dramatic. It's about everything. Everything is on the line here. Um, so the one prediction I will make, again, going back, 
I think if all the parties in the Anta Netanyahu bloc pass the electoral threshold, it will be extremely difficult for him to get to the magic number of 61. However, if even just one of the anti-Netanyahu parties falls beneath the threshold, it is almost certain that he will reach the magic number of 61. Because if one of the parties falls, those votes don't just go to the trash. There is some kind of a you know, redistribution system that will help Netanyahu and his, um, the parties that support him grow on expense of those lost votes and get to the 61 number. So I think the most important component in this election will be the electoral threshold. And the second most important, voting percentage in the Arab society in Israel. If the voting percentage in, in the Arab society in Israel will be 55% or higher, again, it will be extremely difficult for Netanyahu to reach 61 because most of the Arab votes, even though Likud, by the way, also wins some votes in the Arab sector um, and the there's also a history of Arab-Israeli voters supporting ultra-Orthodox parties when those used to help them in all kinds of uh, government dealings and tenders and things like that. At the end of the day, still, the vast majority of Arab voters, when they come out to vote, will support uh, parties that are against Netanyahu. If the Arab voting percentage will be 50% or lower, which is possible, think about what that means, by the way, for Israeli democracy, how grim it is. If one... It, it, more, in, more than one in two you know, Arab voters doesn't even show up. But if that's what we're talking about, and that's a scenario that some polls indicate could happen, again, Netanyahu will have a pretty high chance of reaching 61. So those will be the most important components, the threshold and the Arab voting percentage. So um, you know, on, the, on the question of, uh, of Arab voting percentage, um, we have uh, we have a, a few uh, a few audience questions on on that issue and about the Arab parties in general. Um, uh, Khaled El Gindi, hi Khaled, uh, asks how do you how do you expect uh, Ram to fare in new elections? Will they again support the current ruling coalition? Will they go back to the joint list? Will they be up for grabs between the two big coalitions, or will they just disappear? Great question. Uh, I will be surprised. Not shocked, by surpri but surprised if uh, Mansour Abbas's uh, United Arab List, Ra'am, um, will join forces again with the joint list. Uh, there is so much bad blood right now between these two parties that used to be uh, together, right? The, the United Arab List was part of the joint list together with the other components, but they split. And then when Mansour Abbas went into government, the relations there really deteriorated and it became very ugly. Um, I would be surprised if uh, Mansour Abbas uh, decides to go back into the joint list. The polls right now show his party really hovering kind of like, you know, just barely above the threshold or just barely below it. There is a history of problematic polling of the uh, supporters of the United Arab List. Uh, I will actually take you back to election night in March 2021 last year. Uh, I think two of the three, or maybe even three of the three, I don't remember, but I think it was two of the three Israeli television exit polls showed that the United Arab List did not pass the electoral threshold. And by the way, that's why on election night last year, the, the television exit polls showed Netanyahu with a 61-seat majority because the United Arab List in their polling was beneath the threshold. And while the television exit polls showed his party falling beneath the threshold, when the TV stations went to Mansour Abbas's headquarters, people there were celebrating. And I remember this image of like someone holding one of the members of Knesset, you know, on their shoulders and dancing. Um, and uh, what became apparent is that uh, the United Arab List, they knew they had passed. They didn't wait for the exit polls because they were very, very, um, you know, organized in the election. They had a very clear knowledge of who their voters are. And they had the good field operation of bringing the people to the polls and, you know, listing off the names who had come to vote. And so they knew that they had reached four seats and they were going to pass. So do I trust the polling about them? Not so much. Um, I think they intend to run alone. And I think Mansour Abbas has stated very clearly that he's not ruling out a partnership with Netanyahu after this election. And by the way, I don't think he should, honestly. From his point of view, he represents a sectarian party that wants to bring economic benefits 
to the Arab society in Israel. This is his top priority. This is what differentiates him from the joint list, which is much more ideological and is committed to ending the occupation and a, you know, complete civil equality and things like that. Mansour Abbas says, maybe I also would like the occupation to end, but right now I'm realistic. I want to focus on bringing jobs and schools and clinics to the Bedouin uh, society in the Negev and to the Arab communities in the north and to the mixed cities. So I don't see any reason for him to rule out partnership with uh, any coalition after the election. This is the card he's running on. Will the Arab Israeli voters um, actually give him a second chance after this government fell apart within one year? I think that's a big question. In some respects, the biggest question of this election, again, because of the importance of the threshold. So you mentioned the importance of the threshold, particularly um, on, on the right wing and, and what it'll do to, to Bibi's chances. Um, Jeffrey Neiman wants to know if Yamina ends up running without Bennett, um, you know, there, there, uh, there are rumors that Bennett will, will uh, retire. retire from politics, you know, temporarily or permanently, who knows. But uh, if Yamina does run without Bennett, um, will they likely enter the government with the right wing bloc? How much of their participation with the anti-Nitsanyahu bloc was based on Bennett's personal animosity with him? And how much of it is based on the party being fundamentally offended by Bibi's actions? So there are several layers to this question. It's, it's several questions between, within one. First of all, will Bennett run again? Obviously, I have no idea. I don't think he knows. I don't think uh, Gilad, his wife, knows. I think he just hasn't decided yet. It could make sense for him to retire for a few years from politics, let everyone miss him, right? If Netanyahu comes back to power, people will say, ah, oh, we missed uh, the one year of Bennett. It was so quiet here. It was so calm. Now we've got this constant noise and uh, violent uh, atmosphere again. If Yair Lapid stays in power, maybe some people in the right wing will say, you know what? Actually, it was better with Bennett. We shouldn't have been so harsh with him. Look what we have now. Um, so, and he's, what is, I think Bennett is 50 years old. He could easily make a comeback if he, you know, uh, goes out for a few years. On the other hand, it might also make sense for him to still give it another shot. Um, I think there is a sense in the Israeli public, um, in, in the anti-Netanyahu bloc of appreciation for what he had done, you know, leading this government, breaking away from his previous alliance with Netanyahu, uh, agreeing to sit in a government with an Arab party. I very, very anecdotally, but I do run into people in the center, a kind of, you know, moderate left or very moderate right of the Israeli political system. People I know in my own, you know, neighbors, friends, acquaintances who talk seriously about voting for Bennett, which in the beginning I was very surprised about because as much as um, they might appreciate his participation in this government, still, you know, Bennett is the leader of a right wing party and has this history of, uh, you know, attacking uh, human rights groups in Israel and banning uh, a book when he was education minister that uh, portrayed the uh, um, romance between a, a Jew and an Arab. And, all, you know, there's this history of who Naftali Bennett is. Um, but people say, I was so impressed by him as prime minister. I really appreciate how he stood up to the personal attacks by Netanyahu on him and his family and how we withstood the pressure and went into a coalition with an Arab party and did all of that to avoid an election, I'm giving him my vote. If those anecdotes add into five seats, I don't know, but I do run into it. Now, if he retires, um, I think the most likely scenario is that he gives control of the party to Matan Kahana. Matan Kahana, again, the, his, his only real ally in this party, the only one who was really loyal with him all the way, and then there are really two options for Matan Kahana. One is to try to run in the election. I personally actually really like Matan Kahana. I think he's one of the more serious politicians in this government and in Israel in general. I think he did some good reforms as the religious affairs minister. And he's really also just a very nice guy. I'm not sure he is enough well-known in the public that he can win four Knesset seats on his own shoulders. Um, I mean, in a, in, in, in a very crowded political system like the Israeli one, where you're going to have probably like, I don't know, 12 parties at least running in this election who have a realistic chance of passing the threshold, 
and so much of the focus is going to be on Netanyahu and Lapid, but then you have these other actors who are very well known to the public. You know, you have Smotrich, which is very, you know, and, and Ben Gvir with their very extreme views. You will have Arya Deri, the leader of Shas, who had to retire from politics because of his um, plea deal over another corruption scandal, but now he's allowed to make a comeback, and his comeback will be electric. Uh, you have Mansour Abbas, so fascinating with this experiment. You're going to have Benny Gantz, the former chief of staff, right? Lieberman with his throwing political bombshells every day, you know, uh, other day. I don't know if Matan Kahana can, can create enough attention around him to, to win those 150,000 votes that you're going to have to win to pass the threshold. So I think if, if Bennett retires and gives the party to Matan Kahana, the most likely scenario is for what is left of the Yamina party to join forces with another right-wing anti-Netanyahu party, whether it's uh, Gidon Saar's New Hope, maybe Benny Gantz's Blue and White, uh, something along those lines. Um, but I don't think it would make sense for them to run alone uh, if Bennett is not leading the party anymore. And where does that leave Ayala Chaked? I think uh, one of Bennett's only um, pleasures of blowing up the government this week and announcing the early elections was the thought of what this would do to the members of Yamina who were not loyal to him. And this includes Shaked. Although Shaked was a minister in this government and still is, the government has not fallen down officially yet, right? It's still in office. And she did go into the government with Bennett um, and she did not officially defect at any point. Shaked was really... Um, working from inside this government many times for the Netanyahu-led opposition. Um, she kept a, a protecting Netanyahu from all kinds of initiatives that enjoyed a clear majority in this coalition, like, for example, a law that would forbid someone who is uh, standing a criminal trial from uh, becoming prime minister. She also uh, tried for a while to um, stop the creation of the uh, inquiry uh, commission into the submarine scandal that was something Netanyahu was very opposed to. Uh, I think her actions as the Minister of the Interior certainly contributed to tensions within the government with, the, with Mansour Abbas's party and they did not help to improve the atmosphere inside the government and create more trust. Uh, and I think that in the recent weeks it was not a secret that she was negotiating with Likud that she was uh, talking to people in Netanyahu's orbit about perhaps defecting. Some people say that she was actually the one operating near Orbach, that member of Knesset that you know, was the last one to defect. And I think Bennett enjoyed the idea that by blowing up the government and announcing elections, he's leaving her with nothing. Because Netanyahu doesn't need her anymore in order to dissolve the Knesset and get an early election. He already has that from Bennett and Lapid. And the uh, if Bennett uh, runs again, I'm not sure he takes her with him. I don't think she brings him any votes at this point. And if Yamina continues to exist without Bennett and Matan Kahana joins Gidon Saar, I'm pretty convinced Gidon Saar does not want Ayelet Shaked in his list because Gidon Saar only wants people who are going to be very loyal. Remember right now, Michael, most of the polls show that after this election, the Netanyahu bloc will have 58, 59, maybe even 60 seats on the verge of the magic number. They will need one person to defect from the other side in, you know, get a job, you know, get a ministry, get whatever, um, get some kind of a benefit, betray your voters and switch sides. So choosing people who are loyal and committed is going to be extremely important for each and every one of the anti-Netanyahu parties. So I don't think anyone will want to bring Ayelet Shaked, who is already seen as kind of like, you know, half a, half with, half a leg within Likud. Um, so I think she's in a bad political situation right now. There are a number of questions about um, party mergers um, and whether you think it's likely that we'll see parties in the anti-Netanyahu change block merge to avoid falling below the threshold, such as labor and merits. Um, somebody asked about labor in blue and white, um, or New Hope, Yamina, Israel, Beitenu. Um, so do you expect any of these mergers to actually happen? If these politicians uh, want to survive, 
they will find ways to cooperate and merge together. Um, because if one of the if one of the parties, the idea that a party leader within the internet and airblock can come and say, as long as my party passes, I'm okay, and I don't care if the other one falls beneath the threshold, it's crazy. Uh, because it doesn't work like that in Israeli politics, right? If merit falls beneath the threshold, that doesn't help the Labour Party. That, that helps Netanyahu. It brings Netanyahu to power. Um, so I think if they don't find ways to merge and uh, decrease significantly the risk of not passing the threshold, um, they are basically on the verge of committing mass suicide. Um, now, of course, there are big egos involved. There are people who believe that uh, they know everything. And uh, Merav Michaeli, you know, who is leading labor, she's uh, very, very insistent that she does not want to merge with Meret because Meret is more left-wing than labor. I don't see any difference between Meret and labor today. Um, I really think they are the same. I think it's a completely ridiculous idea. Um, there are parties that are more in the center. True, you know, blue and white by, by Gantz is a center-right party, in my view. Lieberman and Saar are right-wing uh, uh, leaders. Um, but I think, again, also on the right, it would make a lot of sense for whatever is left of Yamina to join forces with New Hope, because that increases the chance that they pass the threshold. But if they don't find a way to have some, at least two significant mergers in the internet and block, they are taking a huge gamble on the future of this country. There are a couple of questions about uh, a caretaker government or, or an interim government um, and what constraints they have on them to govern. Can they do things like negotiate or, or sign treaties that will bind the next government? Um, what happens to the budgets that have been assigned to portfolios? Can, can the money be spent on agenda items such as investment in Arab communities or does everything get frozen? A lot of things will get frozen, but I think the budget that was already approved it's the state budget that the, the country is running on until the end of the year. So that, I think, is okay. The bigger question is what happens with next year's budget? Because if there is an election, but no new government is formed, we will be in the same situation that we were stuck in during the three cycles under Netanyahu when no budget was passed. I mean, that's more of a next year problem. But for example, today, one of the leading news stories in Israel was a... a, a a statement by the Attorney General of Israel who said that Benny Gantz, the Defense Minister, cannot appoint the next Chief of Staff of the IDF once the country is entering election mode because the government becomes an interim government and it does not have the authority to make senior appointments like Chief of Staff of the military. And Gantz is very angry at that because the current Chief of Staff is supposed to end his tenure in a few months and Gantz wanted to appoint his successor. Um, and actually, I have to give a big credit to my colleague Amos Arel, uh, the best national security analyst in Israel, who wrote in Haaretz a month and a half ago an article saying that if Gantz does not hurry with appointing the next military chief of staff, he will leave that decision to whoever leads the next government, perhaps Netanyahu. Um, and he said Gantz has to act very fast before this coalition falls apart over some crisis. When Amos Sarel wrote that, by the way, nobody in Israel knew what the Judea and Samaria regulations even are. Like he wrote that article in early May. No one was talking about those regulations in early May. That all picked up, I think, in late May, early June. Um, but he just said, we don't know what will bring the downfall of this coalition, but it already doesn't have a majority. It's already dying in a sense and Gantz has to act very fast he didn't and now he might not be able to appoint the next military chief of staff because we are entering the interim government uh, um, you know uh, area so that puts a serious limitation on what the government can do uh, we have a, a few questions about um, the the regional environment and and uh, what the election does to that and how that impacts the election um, there's a question on, uh, one of these is about Iran. Um, is Lapid more or less, or less likely to act against Iranian nuclear installations if the security establishment encourages it while he's uh, an interim prime minister? Mm -hmm. um, and sort of on the other side of the equation, 
Uh, Martin Raffle wants to know if if uh, if the Saudis have an interest in seeing Bibi return to power because because of his tougher stance on on Iran, and therefore do you see a possibility of them not giving Biden and Lapid the gift of cooperating on regional security arrangements? Uh, first of all, on the action against Iran, we saw the Bennett government. Uh, you know, how am I allowed to say this? We saw a lot of things happening in Iran during the one year. I think we may have lost Amir. Amir, can, uh, can you hear us? Okay, well, uh, while Amir is frozen, um, I think what uh, I, I think what he was uh, going to say was that in the year since we have seen uh, the Benelopid government in power, um, there have actually been uh, a lot more actions against Iran, uh, both in terms of stepped up Israeli military activities in Syria, um, in terms of uh, covert actions against Iranian uh, nuclear scientists, for instance, um, who have uh, that have that have uh, reportedly been attributed to Israel. Um, so uh, I, I think what he's going to say is that uh, this government has had really no um, hesitation against acting uh, against Iran, um, and that probably uh, changes the Saudi calculus. In terms of the other question as to whether Lapid would actually attack nuclear installations as interim prime minister, uh, I don't see that happening, but mostly because um, it doesn't seem as if Iran is quite that close to getting uh, Building, building a bomb and 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 having it uh, having the ability to mount it on a warhead. So, um, my hunch is that uh, that type of decision um, would be would be punted um, would be punted uh, beyond beyond interim time. Oh, I'm yours back. Yeah, I'll I'll just end by saying sorry. I don't know. Maybe isn't it strange, Michael, that I was disconnected while we were talking about things happening? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I, I think Lapid would want to to stick to that Saudi question by Martin. It's fascinating. Um, I have to say, what we did see during the previous election, March 2021, Netanyahu was planning a visit to the United Arab Emirates two weeks before the election to celebrate the Abraham Accords and show Israelis that he's the only one who can have these relations with the Arab world. And then the visit didn't happen. Uh, the Emirates basically, together with Jordan, made it very difficult for the visit to go through. And the first Israeli prime minister to actually visit the United Arab Emirates was Naftali Bennett. So I'm not sure if the perception that these uh, Arab rulers in the Gulf prefer Netanyahu is, is true, um, because they did not invite, uh, well, they invited him, but they did not actually give him that visit that he really wanted during the previous election. And later, I think Bennett visited twice as prime minister. Um, so that's just one example. I think the Saudi game is about much bigger things that they want from Biden, um, that have to do with Iran, that have to do with the regional standing, that have to do with um, the way Biden spoke about uh, Saudi Arabia when he was running for president. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, whether it's Netanyahu or Lapid in Israel, I'm not sure it makes a huge difference right now to, the, to um, MBS and the other rulers of the Gulf. It seems pretty clear that whoever is in power in Israel would want to capitalize on the Abraham Accords atmosphere and continue that momentum. And then uh, one last question in the 30 seconds we have left uh, from our friend Don Rotem. Do you think a kingmaker prime minister, as opposed to the head of a big party, will become a feature in Israeli politics going forward? A wonderful question. Avigdor Lieberman hinted at it. He gave an interview a few weeks ago, I think it was to Israel Hayom, when he said... Bennett uh, has shown that anyone can be prime minister. Uh, if you have uh, five or six seats and you are the difference maker, you know, the, between one block or the other, why not uh, demand the prime minister's job? So it will be really interesting to see uh, indeed if uh, this uh, scenario repeats itself. Um, and uh, I'm not sure, by the way, it's such a bad idea. Um, I mean, I think Naftali Bennett overall was a pretty good prime minister on some fronts, COVID economic policies, um, and the fact that he had a small party, I think, was not the problem. The problem is that he had a disloyal party, that the members of his own party were not loyal to him and brought him down, uh, and, but not because they, it was a small party to begin with. 
All right, uh, we are out of time, but uh, thank you so much, Amir, as always. Um, you're, uh, you're a fantastic, fantastic guest on, the, on this webinar, and I'm sure we will have you back before thank too you. long. Um, and I'm going to turn things back over to my colleague, Lissy, to close things out. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Amir. Thanks both for joining us today. And once again, a big thank you to our supporters who are with us on today's call. I invite the rest of you to join our family of donors by visiting israelpolicyforum.org forward slash support. The recording of this webinar will be posted on the briefings page of our website. I also encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. Sign up to receive the weekly Coplow column in your email and access recordings of our previous briefings. Please stay tuned for an announcement regarding our next video briefing. And until then, thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you soon.